The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the thrilling conclusion of Robot F. Kennedy's series on climate change. The first week, we talked about motivated ignorance, and that was like Star Wars A New Hope. Last week was our Empire Strikes Back. I don't think this No, this is going to be... No, it's, the metaphor is out. like, um, what you're about to listen to is going to be like Return of the Jedi, if... Luke Skywalker got killed by the Rancor in like the first act and then all the Ewoks died. Okay. Yeah. So like all hope is not lost, but like it's also not, you're not going to get Yub Nub in the end. What is Yub Nub? It's the song they sing in the end. Ugh. Of the song the Ewoks sing. I skipped that. Yeah. I hate the Ewoks so much. Luka, Luka, Lula. Luka, Luka, Lula. Hi. You're about to listen to episode 15 of the podcast. This is the third of a multi-part series on climate change, the president's withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, and the politics and rhetoric that surround it. This week, where are we headed? What scenarios are likely to play out in the decades ahead, as the climate becomes the arch-issue of the future? In this episode, we talk about body heat, globalism, the Cretaceous coastline, healthy debt-to-GDP ratios, and Apple CEO Tim Cook. This is Robot F. Kennedy. Talk to me about climate change, please. <laughs> All right, so I've got, um, I'm going to kick it off. I kind of, I've got a bunch of papers to reference and a bunch of things to talk to you about, but I also want to keep it kind of an open-ended discussion. Sure. So we're going to foray into the future here. Um, a paper was published last week in a journal called uh, Nature Climate Change, which throws me off a little bit because it's like noun, noun, noun. It's a very awkwardly <laughs> named journal, but it's a reputable journal. The title of the paper is uh, Global Risk of Deadly Heat. So this is the like a brief excerpt from the summary. Right now, about 30% of the world's population is exposed to deadly temperatures at least 20 days out of the year. By 2100, the number could reach 74% if greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise and 48% with drastic cuts to emissions. So the upper bound is three and four humans on the earth are exposed to temperatures that, uh, and to be very specific here, because I read the paper, um, these are temperatures and especially humidities Mm -hmm. at which uh, your body is not able to naturally uh, whisk away its core body temperature Mm -hmm. and your core body temperature rises to the point where your organs begin to fail and you can die. Uh, Infants and the elderly are particularly particularly susceptible and uh, this problem will most likely be uh, most acute in the tropics, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't like dry desert heat. This isn't like Phoenix, Arizona per se, although that can be very deadly sometimes too. This is the stifling hot temperatures where you've got a 78-year-old uh, grandma living in a trailer with no air conditioning that dies in the night because she can't, um, she cannot, uh, her body cannot cool itself or regulate its temperature. Wow, so they're going to be exposed to this degree of heat or it's like a number of days? Uh, 74% at the upper bound 48% at the lower bound will be exposed to these types of weather conditions for a minimum of 20 days in a ca- oh, every calendar days. year. So right now, sorry, we're recording this in, uh, in Hanoi <laughs> in 1973. So it's not called that anymore, right? Ho Chi Minh city is Hanoi Ho Chi Minh city or is Saigon know. Ho Chi Minh city. Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about, so I don't know enough about, uh, East Asian geography, I'm very kind of weak at, but in particular, the communist phenomenon where they just rename cities in mm-hmm. honor of uh, great leaders, right? The whole 
Leningrad, St. Petersburg thing. Not the same. Leningrad, Constantinople. St. Saint Pe- <laughs> <laughs> Petersburg became Petrograd. Ah. And I don't know what Leningrad is. That is oil city? No, it's not the same root word. It would be appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> so just to be clear, currently, three out of ten people on Earth, humans, let's call them, are exposed to unsafe temperatures and or humidities for three weeks out of the year. Yes. And that number is going to rise to either to somewhere between 48% and 74%. That's yes. one in two or three out of four. Yes. People on Earth, let's call them humans, who are going to be exposed for three weeks at some point during the year. I mean, that's... To give you an idea, that's six billion people. Right. Actually, probably higher than that because this is by 2100. So the population Whoa. growth estimates yeah. I've seen are about 9 to 10 billion by 2050 and kind of plateauing. So let's just call it 7.5 billion people every year. Let's say we'll, could die if they don't have air conditioning. Right. And that's what we call a a mathematically positive feedback loop, but an emotionally negative feedback loop, (laughs) because then the pressure is to give them a controlled climate, which adds pressure on uh, fluorocarbons and electrical usage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, For the record, everyone, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but 7.5 billion people barely live on the earth right now, let alone have access to air conditioning. It's just a lot of people are going to die in this one way. So something I generally want to talk about. I just want to hang on for a second because like... It's difficult for me to kind of picture numbers like that. Like, it's easier for me to read them. And I know all of our listeners right now are, are just listening. They're listeners. And so I really want to take a moment, just let that sink in, because it is so staggering that the number of people that are alive on Earth today, by tw- the year 2100, that number of people is at risk to die. Of heat exposure. Of heat. Jesus. That doesn't count the people that stand to die because of disrupted food supply chain, because of extreme weather events, because of refugee crises, of international conflict, etc. A huge one, I'm not even, I didn't even mention in that, water quality and access to water, period. It's going to get gnarly if if we don't act. So I, I have half a mind to just like kind of shotgun you with a few different data points and then we can riff okay but i I don't know if that's maybe too crazy of an approach they're all thematically related so we've got this one piece right we've got this heat death um crisis so do you remember uh this there was this tweet that was sent out um a few weeks ago by a guy named malcolm harris uh i'm gonna quote him this was on june 1st of this year I don't think we're all going to die because of climate change. This is what I think is going to happen. And it was an excerpt from uh, a book. I I actually need to find the source of the book. Quote, but nothing is experienced by everyone the same way, not even the weather. The market will price insulation from the climate crisis, just just like it prices everything else. The rich and the people they need around will live in relatively hospitable areas, while the poor will live on the edges of habitability. As automation progresses, the rich won't need the poor so physically close. They could live in whole separate climates. More than the rural-suburban-urban divide, zones of climate intensity will structure the domestic movement of populations. This will include increased regulation of homelessness and vagrancy, so as to prevent freeloaders from enjoying the temperate zones. I'm not sure if the guards will be the robots or humans, or more likely what combination of the two, but there will be a lot of gates. For a, for a while... We'll comment on how weird it is that our behavior is so strongly determined by the weather, and then we won't anymore. 
I'm worried that climate change poses such a unique threat because it climate change to a scientifically illiterate mind, climate change can cover its tracks really easily. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's in a way it's a crisis that is almost it's almost could be engineered to exploit all the blind spots in our evolutionary perception right Mm -hmm. we are we we are evolved to plan and observe change on a at most annual seasonal cyclical level Mm -hmm. i think it's no uh accident that we plan our business cycles by fiscal years um and into quarters that map readily to seasons of the year it also is a problem that has been uh that has uh, invisible effects. Mm-hmm. It hurts people you've never met. It hurts people you might never meet. Mm-hmm. Every time I come up with an idea of like, oh, but we'll be okay because of this thing, this great trait of either human beings in general or Americans specifically, I always come up with a counterpoint of, go ahead. But look at CFCs. Look at the ozone. Like Those were big environmental problems in their day. And we decided to do something about them. And I think that right now the world is deciding to do something about climate change. We're just not really a part of it. Yeah. And what I'm worried about is kind of what you said, that like it's easy for the effects of climate change to be felt without people realizing that it was climate change that caused them, right? Last week we talked about the Syrian civil war, which is ongoing, and that it was exacerbated by a drought, which can be attributed to climate change. But nobody is talking about the climate change of Syria. People are just talking about the armies that are fighting there. And that's actually, I think, a real concern. That there is going to be a global conflict that is somehow rooted in climate change, but that we'll be so focused on the conflict that we won't realize what got us there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Do you want to talk about when the climate changes, the net migration within the United States and how it may affect what states' populations increase and what po- states' uh, populations well, increase. Well, you know I love maps, so yes, I absolutely want to talk about that. I found this through uh, Motherboard. If you guys don't know about it, I recommend it. It's really edgy and weird. It's, it's, it's f- fairly reputable in terms of its sourcing, and it's in terms of its sourcing, it's nothing like fringy, like conspiracy shit. But in terms of its tone, it's a it's a sub publication of Vice. So in the terms of its subject matter, it gets edgy and weird and not safe for work sometimes, and explores the corners of the world. But it's generally science and technology oriented. And this article is from April seventeenth of this year. The title is uh, "New Simulations Predict the United States Coming Climate Change Mass Migration," and it's really fascinating. It's kind of long. But the long and the short of it is uh, it basically simulates as the sea level rises what states will be most disproportionately impacted Uh and assuming that the citizens of those states are relocated either of their own will or by an organization like FEMA Uh in the way that a lot of uh, citizens of of Louisiana were relocated to Texas and uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama and other surrounding states after Hurricane Katrina. And a lot of them never went back to Louisiana. What states stand to lose the most population and what states stand to gain the most population? Okay. Uh, Net loss and net gain. 
And this has a lot of impact, not only in terms of stability of society, et cetera, but also in terms of congressional districting, et cetera. So what's interesting is the biggest um, kind of net loss are going to be no surprises to you. Yeah, hold on. Let me guess. You, okay. you started to make the F sound, so I think it's Florida. Florida is the biggest by far. Then Two, I'm going to say 2.5 million citizens yeah. are expected by 2050 to leave Florida because of rising sea levels. Okay. Then I'm going to say Louisiana. Yep. Is that number two? That's number two. Okay. I think you'll have a hard time with number three, though. I think number three is going to be California. Nope. California is, other than the San Francisco Bay itself, California is actually one of the most, because of average average altitude of the land Mm -hmm. in the state, it's actually one of the more resilient to specifically the threat of sea level rise. There are other climate change factors that are going to hit California pretty hard, particularly okay, I have, drought. I have two more guesses. Go. Then I'll let you just tell me. Maryland? No. Just because I'm looking at my map and Maryland has a lot of uh, coastline. Yeah. And, ooh, I want a third guess. Alaska, I'm sorry, not Alaska. Hawaii? No. Okay, final guess, Arizona. Nope. Okay, so I got the first two and then yeah. whiffed. New Jersey. Okay. And then Virginia. Oh, Virginia was was thinking about it. And what I think is extra interesting based on some conversations that we've had is we start to see that, uh, not Paleolithic, that um, yeah. Mesozoic, the whatever shoreline come into play. So um, what do the, you mean? So well, ta- no, I know. So just okay. So going back, there's a, do you want to talk? You talk about it. Sure. If you look at maps from the 19th century of which congressional districts had the most slaves, and you put that, you overlaid that of a map of where, which congressional congressional districts in the South vote for Democrats, there is a very clear correlation because those states, to, those districts today have high uh, populations of, of black voters. Why were, sl- was there anything special about those areas that led slaves to be there? Yeah, bro, I'm getting there. Okay. So... The soil is incredibly fertile in those areas, which is why they were the locations of, you know, these high-yield plantations, um, because they were ancient coastlines. That's as much as I know. I don't know why them being coastlines makes the soil extra fertile. Because there's a lot more tidal life, which has a lot more turnover uh, in terms of biomass. So you've got more shellfish and more... You just have a lot more bioactivity in on shorelines than you do in the deep sea or than you do um, at high altitudes. So you can see this map, you can see this line going through like Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and it's still there it's, today. It's crazy. I mean, I, we've both seen the maps um, for our readers. I'll put a link in the show notes to, the, to, to this, but it's, um, it's effing mind blowing because it's, it's like literally you could draw a map, like you could take a, a modern day blue and red uh, congressional map or county based uh, voting preference map, and it maps to a Cretaceous yeah. coastline. Yeah. It's crazy. You could put it over like a slide transparency. Right. So uh, th- those are the areas that stand to kind of long term are the more resilient to rising sea levels, obviously. Sure. So we've got Georgia is going to have a huge influx of uh, population projected Texas, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New York. This is crazy, right? Because we think about manifest. Go ahead. This is not, this is internal migration. 
Yeah. This is not taking into account a Central American slash Mexican refugee crisis that could be sparked by climate change. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, it's possible that Central Americans and Mexicans will go to those states that you just named, Pennsylvania, Georgia. But, I mean, looking on the map, it, they're far more likely to go to the states that are closest to the U.S.-Mexican border. So, yeah. again, that this this thing that you're reading... Is just internal migration. Internal migration. It's just American citizens relocating to other places within the United States. Right. How do you feel about America's kind of current place in the world in the geopolitical landscape? Talking about U.S., the EU, the UK, all the countries, Russia, China, all the countries, North Korea. But I'm not as interested in how you feel about the U.S.'s relationship with Luxembourg. I'm more interested in those kind of big, the, the G7 and Russia. They've got and China. They've got great banking and great cheese in Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Have you ever been to Luxembourg? No, I've never been to yeah, Luxembourg. Me neither. Um, funny you should say that the G7 plus Russia. Um, I was listening to an interview with Gary Kasparov, uh-huh. um, oh. who's become a political activist. Yeah. You know that? He wrote a book. Yeah. Do you know the name of it? No, but I bought it for my dad for Christmas. He, he wrote a book about Russia, the, you know, kind of the rising Russia before we really knew anything about Russia's interference in the election. Yeah. What I wanted to bring up is... He he says that the greatest the greatest like kind of media warfare or the greatest psychological warfare game Vladimir Putin ever played was cozying up to George W. Bush early in his presidency and agreeing or negotiating for Russia to be included in the G7 talks because on time you know in Time magazine when you see the prime ministers and presidents of uh, of France mm. and and Great Britain and of the UK and the United States and Canada, et cetera, um, Japan, so on. And then Vladimir Putin's there, even though if you look at it purely economically, he's got no business being there. Mm-hmm. Like he's, it's like, if you looked at it purely economically in population, uh, or even, uh, did per capita GDP, I'm looking up GDP right now. It's, it's like way down. You basically, uh, Russia's GDP is less than one tenth of the United States. Yeah. So, so the point is that like he he basically sucked up to George W. Bush. He offered to uh, I think host it one year. There were a couple things that he did, and what it what it led to was the media covering it as though Russia was supposed to be a part of G seven, and that it was a totally normal thing, and that completely elevated its status on the wow. world stage and completely changed the conversation about Russia because like when. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't Gorbachev. It was Boris Yeltsin. Yeltsin. When Boris Yeltsin was uh, president of Russia, he was. The, they were not part of the right G seven G seven back then. Yeah. So anyway, that's a random tangent. So you're asking how I feel about. Yeah, the I know that States. you were really worried. You know, a few months ago when Trump said we were sending aircraft carriers to Korea and then it turned North Korea and then it turns out that they were actually in the other direction. No. Oh. oh boy. Today is the day that we record, which is a week before you'll hear this. <laughs> yeah. So today is uh, June 20th, 2017. And today, uh, President Trump tweeted. I'm just going to quote the bastard. Do you remember the George W. Bush Hold quote up. about looking into yeah. Putin's eyes? Vladimir Putin. Looking look into his soul. Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, by most account, by, by most people who are in the geopolitical and espionage know, is like a devout atheist who plays on TV a devout Russian Orthodox for political reasons, uh, studied American born-again Christianity, 
so that he could talk to George W. Bush about his faith, like so that he could basically talk in the born again Christian lingo to win affection or or curry favor with George Jesus. W. Bush. That 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 specific. I got to dig this up. This is a. I, I remember exactly where I listened to this. I, I can't quote it from memory, but I know it was um, Sam Harris, who's a neuroscience yeah. professor at Stanford. Um, his podcast is called Waking Up, and he interviewed Gary Kasparov in the end. I think it was after the election. I'm almost certain it was after the election, but it's sometime in, let's say in the last six to nine months. And it's fascinating, mostly about what mostly what Gary Kasparov says. Here's the thing. I, here's the question I have about Putin: Is that is he really that smart and and sly? He ran Russia's and he ran Russia's intelligence service or a giant wing of it in East Germany. Right. Yeah, I know like, that. So, is he the smartest person in the world? Probably not. Is he certainly very smart and very clever and very politically savvy to mm-hmm. be able to get to that position in the Soviet Union? Mm-hmm. Probably. I mean, that's more, that's more a uh, career achievement than our current president of the United <laughs> States ever had. That's true. Of his own merit, right? Or of his own doing. Do you, I was just reading for the first time about this coup attempt in Russia at the, you know, at the end of the, uh, during the fall of the Soviet Union. Do you know about this? I no. think it was during... Gorbachev, 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 how do you say his name? I think it's Gorbachev. And the kind of Russian gen- or Soviet generals tried to launch a coup against him to, uh, oh, you know what, what got me reading about this was the Oliver Stone interview with Putin. Oh, I haven't watched it yet. Well, I haven't watched it. I just saw a few clips from it. And Oliver Stone asked Putin like what he thinks about Snowden and very weird because you feel like Oliver Stone's getting played. but it probably is. Yeah, but Putin says, like, no, I think that he should have stayed in his country and he should have resigned his his job. And, and Speaking of whom? Putin is speaking of Snowden. Oh. Should have stayed in the United States, resigned from, what did he work for, the CIA or for no, the Army? No, he worked for Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a... Oh, um, he didn't work directly for the government? It's in a... Worked for a contractor. Yeah, it's a high level, I mean, very yeah. high level contractor like Northrop Grumman, and they focus on computer science and cybersecurity and stuff like that. And then Oliver Stone the says, NSA. It was oh, the NSA. like the way that you resigned. And he said, yeah. And I was like, what? So during this coup where the generals, you know, these top level people were basically telling Gorbachev, like, you're out. Gorbachev had no choice. And he was like, all right, like, do what you have to do, is what I read on Wikipedia. And so then they kind of went through the government to figure out who was on their side. And that was when Putin quit from the resigned from the KGB was during this kind of week long hmm. attempted coup. And ultimately they were unsuccessful. Interesting. Was reinstalled. Really, Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. Anyway. So go ahead. So today, uh, President Trump tweeted the following. Um, this is on June 20th, 2017. Quote, while I greatly appreciate the efforts of President Xi and China to help with North Korea, it has not worked out. At least I know China tried. What? What has not worked out? I think it's left deliberately vague. I think some people would say the uh, very high-level back-channeling that the Chinese government has been doing to North Korea in order to get them reined in, in our president's estimation, on Twitter at least, those, that has failed. This is a, in, a res, in response to the 
young gentleman right. that was I forget his returned name. Otto something. warm beer. We're really meandering. Should we can this episode? No, we'll we'll find something. Okay. <laughs> I ask how you're feeling. I'm self-conscious because I'm like feeling bummed. I ask how you're feeling about oh, kind yeah. of the geopolitical landscape. Because I am afraid. Not on a day-to-day basis like I was a few months ago. I'm not like afraid every night when I go to sleep. Like what if the bomb, what if they drop the bomb? But I am afraid that we are headed toward a large geopolitical confrontation. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's going to be purely an economic one. Like, well, moving, you, also, you also heard that Russian jets buzzed a spy plane today within four feet. No. Yeah. That's like close enough to f- like Maverick and Goose flipping them yeah. off. Yeah, and not in Syria, in the North Sea. Where's the North Sea? In, uh, by, by UK? Denmark, Nor- yeah. uh, Norway, Denmark, uh, all that jazz. Uh, furthermore, Russia said that they cut off their communication lines over the United States shooting down a Syrian plane right. and said that, and they're basically instituting a no fly zone against the United States and say that they may shoot down U.S. planes if they fly in certain areas of Syria. Mm-hmm. Like, this is getting tense. Furthermore, furthermore, speaking of climate, uh, there is a well studied phenomenon in which temperatures, in quotes, I'm using air quotes, temperatures, both external weather temperatures and people's emotional and political <laughs> temperatures, rise in the summertime. Yeah. And revolutions happen in the summertime, and armed conflict is more likely to happen in the summertime. And we're at the beginning of the summer right now. You got to read uh, David Simon's American book. American Nations. You got to read that book. And then when you're done with that, read David Simon's Homicide that You're on the Killing Streets. And he talks about the. Homicide Division, Baltimore PD, and how much they are not looking forward to the first warm days of the year because the murder rate goes way up. Yeah. It's where we're just monkeys that came we're, down from the trees. We're di- we barely came down from the trees. That's the thing. Um, how do I feel? I don't know. I don't feel any better about what's going on and about our place. I feel like we're, I feel like we're losing our stature. Um, but that we can that can be reattained. Uh, Barack Obama was elected, and they gave him a Nobel sure. Peace Prize basically just for getting elected because he wasn't George Bush. Generally, sure. Yeah, I mean, imagine that, just because he's not George Bush. Now imagine with Donald Trump, like <laughs> the lows keep getting lower. Um, I'm I'm just afraid that uh, we're. What's weird is like I'm afraid we're losing our our influence, and I and I'm always in my mind, hedging that statement because it's like, what, what is our influence? And like, why is it important? We talked a little bit about it a a while ago where it's, to me, it's, uh, democratic values and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and, um, one person, one vote things that are honestly, a lot of the time, not always super certain things even here. Right. But they're the ideas that we're at least striving for Mm -hmm. and have been striving for, for a long time. And, uh, as we said, as I said before, China doesn't share those values. Um, Russia sure as hell doesn't share those values. Syria doesn't sh- share those values. North Korea doesn't share those values. But there are even a lot of like far more mainstream countries that aren't North Korea that also don't share those values. You know, Great Britain and France and Germany don't have as rigid free speech um, and freedom of religion and freedom of expression and freedom of peaceable assembly laws and traditions as we do. Certainly. Uh, a lot of countries around the world uh, don't have as strident democratic values as we do. And so when we when we step away from the world stage, I, I, I just worry about, 
I worry about the world getting a hell of a lot worse. And and I hesitate because the, I almost think sometimes that um, I almost think sometimes that like why would I care? Like one natural response might be why do you care or why is it important? I think other than general altruism for f- my fellow human beings, there's like a there's this idea that like the earth is a closed system. There there is no such thing as a local problem in the world these days. And so if we allow I don't know, if we allow the world to go haywire, it's going to inevitably end up biting us. A few weeks months ago when we were talking about how to what were President Trump's KPIs? Mm-hmm. KPI I asked, is it the president's job to be the steward of the American economy? And now, as you and I are talking about kind of the geopolitical landscape and how things are looking and American leadership abroad, I think that, you know, the party that's in the White House goes back and forth every four, eight, 12 years. The fact that the Republicans control all three branches of Congress, of the government, that doesn't happen very often, but that's hap- the Democrats have enjoyed that as well. The Republicans have enjoyed that before. That goes back and forth. The government was des- the federal government at least was designed to be difficult to make swift changes that are permanent. And so I really wish that Trump hadn't won, but I am confident that this America the idea of American democracy will persist so long as the economy flourishes relative to the rest of the world. But that's not even a foregone conclusion. I know it's not a foregone conclusion, but I'm saying if 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 that can happen, then I'm not worried about the next. It's like the Russians are better hackers than us. The Chinese make more solar panels than us. The Indians are better computer programmers than us. The you know, shit, Emmanuel Macron is inviting American entrepreneurs to go to France yeah. if they if they want to have a, you know, favorable working environment. So, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I'm not saying it's a foregone conclusion. I also think you made a comment before you made a comment a few weeks ago as a joke. But it touched upon something I've been worried about for a long time. And I think it's an interesting line of dialogue. So let's go with it for a second. I made a joke about uh, if China wanted to take over Hollywood, they couldn't just storm in and point a gun and force Mm -hmm. uh, all the screenwriters to write propaganda movies. And you quipped something like, they wouldn't have to because they already do. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing, right? Where capitalism doesn't have necessarily any ideology other than capitalism. And so when you're when you're making a product like a film that's trying to make as much money as possible and therefore seek out the largest uh, audience possible that today includes 1.3 billion Chinese uh, consumers. And we've seen like a natural basically like a self-censoring effect that Hollywood's been going through, not because any not because any um, Communist Party member or censor is sitting there with a rubber stamp saying that you can't make this movie, mm-hmm. but because the market dynamics in which China is uh, certainly verging on having a monopsony on content. Um, What's that? It's the opposite of a monopoly. It's uh, the oh, monopoly is when you have one one seller seller, and a monopsony is when you have one buyer. Wow! And they both exert similar control over any marketplace. So when you have a Chinese, you know, not a literal Chinese monopsony on content, but a getting closer and closer to that every day, Hollywood, like any system that makes any product, is going to tailor that product to its audience. And so you have you have this great pillar of American soft power, Hollywood, mm-hmm. that is acting contrary to 
American interests and values or even Hollywood interests and values in order to maximize its profits in a world in which China has uh, disproportionate buying power or attention value. Whoa. And that makes me uncomfortable. You know, you're stumbling on something, maybe not stumbling, you're arriving at something that I hadn't thought about before, which is that American economic dominance in the 20th century was built on the idea that we were making the world's products, right? We were making certainly the world's guns and tanks and planes and ships, but also and eventually... Um, the typewriters. And typewriters the... and computers and televisions and like Ours. literally the televisions, not what's on, not the content, but the TV both, sets themselves. Both things. And, yeah, Perfect. cars, you said. And the fact that we were making all those things gave us the wealth to then buy the world's products. But American dominance came not from the buying, but from the selling, right? It never occurred to me that you could achieve economic dominance if you could, if you, from the buying. Oh, interesting. Yeah, totally. But the, but where are they getting the money from? China? Yeah. This, A this swiftly closing window on lower relative labor values, strip mining their country, but actually with increasingly fre- increasing frequency, in, ugh, increasing frequency resource extraction elsewhere outside of China. Hmm. China has the largest mining operations in Afghanistan, in Central Africa. There are entire, uh, there are entire cities and towns in Central Africa that have a majority Chinese wow. uh, populations that are there to uh, support the cottage industries of Right. cadmium mining and um, and other rare earth elements. Um, some of that's shifting and this stuff all happens so fast. Um, I've, I even read something recently that uh, um, a lot of this stuff starting to reverse itself and because of various pressures, some Chinese companies and populations are starting to leave Africa. But yeah, I mean... But this is my question, which is that like in a relationship where Hollywood is, or excuse me, where China is buying all of its entertainment from Hollywood, who is the master of that relationship? Well, theoretically, it starts off with the party that's making the product that wants to be bought. Right. But eventually, if the buyer gets enough power that, and, then threatens to, and then threatens to take its purchasing power elsewhere, I don't know. What's tricky with that is that like with iPhones, there are other parties that make relatively similar products. But with film and television... You know, uh, it's tricky, right? Like the UK, I think per capita has a disproportionately influential kind of written and literary and uh, and kind of acting tradition. They not kind anymore. of they not, kind of punch above their weight in not, terms of not now that the Republicans are boycotting Shakespeare. That's God over. damn it! What's that it's about? Over with. That's such a non-story. <laughs> it kills me. You had a good um, run, Shakespeare. God. Can I tell you my thing? I feel like this episode is just the a little bit about everything. Yeah, let's do it. Why not? Let's just embrace it. And then let's put on Twitter like, hey, don't listen to this episode. It's crazy. Slash, if you listen to it, you're our best friends. The little bit about everything. It's going to be a pain in the ass to edit, too. I think if something offends you and you don't like it, unless it is hateful, don't watch it or don't buy it. What happens if it's hateful? Then it should not be available for public consumption. Ooh, okay. But is that like the, who gets to determine if something is hateful? By hateful, I mean inciting uh, violence. Ooh. Did you see the show, the the planning document where I put the Oliver Wendell Holmes article? Is that the 
the shot fire in a theater? Yeah. No, I didn't see the article, but I'm familiar with the legal argument or judgment. And you know, it's being misused by everyone always. Why? Okay, so this was going to be like maybe a prompt for an entire episode, but well, I'll keep it, it might brief. Be. This is the potpourri episode. <laughs> so Oliver Wendell Holmes was an influential American Supreme Court justice. Uh-huh. In 1919, if I remember uh-huh. correctly, there was, well, was during a, World War One. There was the a Red Scare case called United States v. Schenck. It was the cra- uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Not uh, literally. No. Justice Holmes. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in his majority opinion that it would be analogous to shouting fire in a crowded theater and used uh, the majority decision to basically censor some behavior. It was, I think it was the American socialist party. They were censoring or putting, no, they were, uh, they were, they were imprisoning uh, members of the American socialist party under like the Espionage Act or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he used this analogy, right? It, it would be like uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater and inciting a panic or a riot. What's weird though, or like, and then it's, it's very colloquially used. Everyone's heard it, I'm sure. It's colloquially used to express the limits of free speech. However, 40 years later, the United States Supreme Court resoundingly rejected that decision and overturned it. And it has been overturned since 1959. Furthermore, Oliver Wendell Holmes, within one year, realized the like logical <laughs> mistake he'd made. And he himself wrote a majority opinion for a case about one year later that was in direct conflict with United States v. Schenck. And so, Schenck v. United States. Schenck v. United States. Uh, and so the point is that this super often cited little analogy... I think it just goes to show the viral power of a well-articulated idea. This tiny little uh, tidbit was almost immediately rejected by its author, was formally rejected by the Supreme Court of the United States a couple, a few decades later, and to this day does not hold any legal water whatsoever. Okay, but I'll tell you what does, which is... That in 1969, in Brandenburg v. Ohio, the Supreme Court ruled that speech could be prosecuted only when it posed a danger of imminent lawless action. So while you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater, uh, while you can shout fire in a crowded theater, right? Yeah. You cannot shout at people telling them to light fires in a crowded theater. Right. That's... But that's a very different thing. But that's what I'm saying. And also, further, it's it's imminent threat, and there's another little clause, too. It's imminent threat, and and then it actually has to result in. So it's not only you what? have to tell someone to light a fire, then they have to actually light the fire, and then you can be prosecuted for it. I'm not seeing that. But Furthermore, I believe this was used as precedent this week. Did you read about the case where the uh, GF and BF, the, uh, the BF was suicidal, the GF said that to go kill yourself, and he did? Yeah. You can tell someone to kill yourself. That's free speech. If they actually kill themselves, you can be prosecuted for it. Okay, what I'm saying is Bill Maher wants to say the N-word on his show. I don't agree with the use of the N-word. I wish he hadn't have said that because I used to like his show. But I don't think he should be pulled off the air. I think if it offends you, you should not watch his show. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think it's, I'm, I'm smirking because who was, who was the comedian or somebody that said that, uh, how effed up? the term the n-word is because it just oh. makes everybody say it in their head louis ck yeah it's like 
It's like a thought bomb. I I mean, I think that the people on Fox News say horrible things every day, but I don't think they should be taken off the air. I choose to exercise my power to not watch their show. Agree. All right, topic number 12. Go. Charles Dickens. We talked, we talked before about this idea that Obama is not this transformational, transformational, transformative. Transformative. Transformative president and that Trump will not be either. But if we're in a realignment phase, it's probably the next one or maybe the one after that, right? It sounds like a super vague thing to say. But that was in my mind. And then I'm reading these articles about not only what is the Democratic candidate in 2020 going to look like, but what is the Democratic Party going to look like in 2020? And it makes me wonder, are we gearing up for a Reagan of the left? I hope we are. Is America finally ready for, like, real progressivism? I mean, this healthcare debate certainly seems to be pushing us closer to single payer than I feel ever before. I think... And the funny thing is, when Trump tweeted during the campaign, I think, like, my, in my, under my health care, everyone's going to be covered and it's going to be cheaper. And I texted you, if Donald Trump is what gets us single payer, like... I don't even know. I don't even understand America anymore. Yeah. And it really does feel like that's where we're headed. Not because Trump is going to sign that legislation, but because the Republicans are are messing up health care, the health care debate so much right now that I feel like America is is heading toward like, why are we paying for this at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the least discussed things here is that Republicans are... Re- are rejecting Obamacare largely because it's not liberal enough. Go on. I don't know what you it's mean. It's like so it's like one of the most it's one of the most counterintuitive things in American political history. So sure there is some small percentage of Republicans that are that will very literally state I'm not a woman. I don't want to pay for women's tampons. I don't want to pay for childcare and maternity. I don't want to pay for my neighbor to break his leg and then get better. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I want the cheapest possible insurance that I use because I'm me and I make my own decisions. And I also want, if possible, like if it's my choice to not have health insurance and die, I want to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. There are people that do think that way. Sure. But the majority of Republicans and their complaints and particularly the people that made the difference and, and propelled Trump to the white house are Republicans that have stated on the record time and again, and I'm not talking about the politicians, I'm talking about this, the voters, that, yeah, Obamacare is a failure because my premiums are too high mm-hmm. and my, my deductibles are too high and it, the costs are going up. But, uh, but of, course you, of course you should cover people with pre- right. pre-existing conditions. And of, of course... Uh, you know, birth control should be covered or pregnancy should be covered or childbirth should be covered. Um, of course, it doesn't make sense to let little kids, to let Jimmy Kimmel's son die unless Jimmy Kimmel writes a $5 million check. Of course, that's just, that's just what Christians believe. But that Obama, you know, with his trickery, uh, made it, basically made a bad deal and it's too expensive and we don't get enough for it. The problem is, that every single expert in the whole freaking earth <laughs> says that, great, if that's your problem with the law, then the answer to that is, there are a few different answers. 
You can put more government subsidies into it to make mm-hmm. it cheaper for people. You can increase the pool of people that are covered mm-hmm. with more mandates and or decreasing the age of uh, of eligibility for Medicare, mm-hmm. um, doing a lot of other things. You can increase competition in markets that only have one provider by having a public option. Mm-hmm. Or you can just go to single payer and have uh, price controls set by the federal government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are things you do. Every single one of those things is more liberal than the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> otherwise known as Obamacare. Right. Every one of those right. things. And so, so I think it's going to get. I think a, the American Healthcare Act will get will be passed. I think it's going to be passed in the next couple of weeks. I do too. And I think it's going to be bedlam. I think it's going to cause an immediate economic problem. Mm-hmm. It's one sixth of the healthcare. Yeah. Is one sixth of the economy. absolutely. And I think you're going to have bloody murder being screamed by the people that need the Obamacare reforms the most, which are poorer, less educated, more rural people. And those are largely the people, those are mostly people that have voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So um, this is really an area. I think, I think to get back to, to, to get out of like the wall street journal or the New York times or the Washington post and get more to like Eddie and Nick, What's going on here? I think this is an example of realignment happening before our very eyes. We're looking at this and going, none of this makes sense. Right. Zebras are are swimming in the ocean and dolphins are running from lions. Dogs with dogs. Yeah. Up is down and down is up. This doesn't make any sense. And I think the obviously it's happening. So why is it happening? And I think it's an example of realignment. Who's going to seize on that? I don't know. Is 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 there going to be a democratic presidential candidate and democratic majority in Congress that in two or four years are going to say, okay, we're going to keep the uh, healthcare competency that we rate very highly on. Like voters trust Democrats with healthcare. We're going to, we're going to keep our pro healthcare uh, kind of pro social safety net message, but we're going to jettison the wall street shit. We're going to jettison the Silicon Valley shit. And we're going to, basically embrace the kind of Trump populism, but merge it like I don't quite Trump understand what with that a, means. Trump with a heart is what I'm saying. Well, he, here's what I'll say. I, I believe in more subsidies. I believe in lowering the age for Medicare. I mean, I think that people need health care. I, I, I believe in a public option. Putting the public option aside for a second, increased, medi- increased subsidies and increased access to Medicare costs a lot of money. Yeah. And if you're looking at the the budget deficit right now, it is very high. And if you're looking at public debt, it is very high. It has not come down since the recession. It's almost, as we've talked about before, we're coming up on 10 years. God, it kills me. And which any economic historian can tell you, as you brought up a couple weeks ago, that means we're due for another one. But the credit card is maxed out. So I understand. Well, that's not quite true. We're not we're not in great fiscal fighting shape. Certainly, if we had another financial crisis like we had in two thousand seven, we don't have all of the tools in our tool chest that we had in two thousand seven to deal with the financial crisis. We've given some of those tools away. Mm-hmm. We've sold some of them off. Some of them have been taken by bandits. Some of them mm-hmm. have been made politically neutralized. So that would be really bad. But I don't buy the whole credit cards maxed out thing. We're like. That's just not how Nick, it works. Debt to GDP is at a very 70 high. to 75%. Yeah. China's right now is 240%. Oh, 
Okay. Well, I'd rather Japan live here than is China. 150. There are a lot of countries that have very high debt to GDP ratios. Now, just a little bit of schooling. Okay. I want to school you just a little bit no, in a I, loving way. No, I didn't know this. Go okay. On. One, there is a line, like a red line, that is considered somewhere between 100 and 125% of GDP that was used by um, a lot of economists. And it was based on a lot of research that was done. I'm going to flub this, but I can come back to it later. Uh, but it, uh, I want to say it was like Harvard Business, like HBS, Harvard Business School, or some very reputable Ivy League academic institution did a long-term study to basically try to pinpoint when a country tips in their GDP ratio from healthy to unhealthy levels of debt. And this line was determined to be somewhere between 100 and 125%. That was the line that was used to negotiate the austerity measures for the Greek bailout, if you remember that correctly. Mm-hmm. So the EU said, okay, Greece, your debt-to-GDP ratio has crossed the 125% threshold you guys need to stop. We need to intervene. Massive austerity, et cetera. After that bailout was negotiated, a math error was found in the research that has been the underpinning of okay. uh, kind of anti-debt, pro-austerity, uh, neoliberal economics for the last 30 years. And there's no new line. They're basically, the new answer is we don't know where the line is. There may not be a line um, it's kind of one of those touchy-feely mystical things where like so long as people keep lending, it's like psychological. So long as there are consumers of a country's debt bonds, then there is no right. real quantifiable line. So I just want to push back on the like, I don't think the credit card's maxed out. That said, is keeping all the system exactly how it is, I think keeping the system exactly how it is and just increasing subsidies is probably throwing good money after bad. So that's not a long-term solution. Yes. That's one of my favorite phrases by the way throwing good money after bed and i look for chances to use it all the time but if you're talking about something in which it's uh, a good phrase you're talking about something that is not good to yeah. talk about anyway well that was my point which is that i i understand where republicans and fiscal conservatives are coming from when they say you can't we can't just keep doing this i mean you you really hit it on the head it's throwing good money after bad but i don't know I don't necessarily know what the solution is. Here's I'm a- scared of the solution. Uh, do you know what? Can I be very sincere with you for a second and say I, I, I fear the solution is massive violence and a civil war in the United States. Because the path we're on is a path by which either, and this is, I'm going to be simultaneously a super liberal dad with like his Marxist hat on and like the dick uncle that's. I don't. Uh, I'm going to simultaneously be like the dick uncle that's a hedge fund manager and then like the dad with the Marxist hat on. Yeah, we're, I think we're on a logical path right now where it, whether it takes five or 10 or 50 or 100 years, one road is... Pitchforks? Insolvency. Uh-huh. Like w- one road is the like, is the worst idea, like is Republicans' worst ideas of what Democrats are? Is like, <laughs> we're just insolvency and we're going to throw money at poor people until we all collapse and die, right? Mm-hmm. And the other path is austerity and benefits to the wealthy until poor people literally die, whether it's a violence in the streets or sickness or whatever, right? Uh, Or heroin addiction, as we're seeing now. And I don't know how you reconcile those without a massive redistribution of wealth. And this isn't like Bill O'Reilly, Barack Obama wants to redistribute the wealth. (laughs) I mean that there are literally trillions of dollars of assets and capital that are controlled by a very small number of people worldwide, but particularly in the United States. And those people are not going to give that money up easily. 
and it is going to take some bubble bursting. And I don't mean like a property bubble. I mean the, um, the sustained emotional pressure of millions upon millions of people living such a miserable fucking life that they are willing to grab the literal pitchforks. No way. To change the way things are. I'm talking French Revolution. I'm talking no 1789. Because and I don't the French want revolutions that. couldn't wire money to, to, back, to Luxembourg, to the Cayman Islands. Maybe it'll be a worldwide, worldwide revolution. Oh, please. Why don't we have... I don't want that. More, I don't want it. Why don't... Uh, look, th- things have got to change, but I don't think we're headed for anarchy in the streets. So, so okay, you said the credit card's maxed out. How do we start paying off the credit card? I have no idea. We take the money from your grandma? You want to know my real solution, which is we build fewer aircraft carriers and bombs. We deploy fewer troops overseas. Okay. So that'll, that'll get you, that'll get you what? Like you cut the military budget in half, which would be the most massive military budget cut in, in American history. You Mm -hmm. cut it in half and you pay for a year of social security. Really? Yeah. No way. The military, the, the annual United States military budget is a, Roughly within a few billion dollars, identical to Social Security, which is roughly identical to Medicare. Excuse me, Medicaid. Medicare. Those three things are co-equal, and they make up seventy-five percent of our budget. And then everything else is the fourth right quarter. I know everything else, which is like the hypocrisy of the Trump budget, which is like, oh, we're going to cut the EPA and we're going to cut. Yeah. You know, it's the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. It's like, yeah, that does save money, but it's like we're going to cut the NEA yeah. and PBA or what's it? Not PBS, but yeah, PBS, yeah, Corporation right? for Public Broadcasting. Yeah. And it's like, yes, that literally does save millions of dollars, but we're talking about a budget that's like a trillion dollars. Um, wow, I, I expected more savings from that. And I wasn't trying to fund the government with my military savings. I was trying just to fund single payer or at least huge subsidies. Social Security, annual expenditures in 2014. Social Security is the number one line item. billion, 24% of the federal budget. What's the military? Healthcare, so combined Medicare and Medicaid, $831, 24%. Billion dollars. Billion dollars, yeah. So, so far my pillars, my Mm -hmm. co-equal pillars are accurate. Number three, Defense Department, $596 billion or 17%. Wow. So you want, if you cut that in half, roughly $300 billion, you could pay for... Uh, four months of either Social Security or Medicare and Medicaid. You pick which. Whoa, this does not work. My math does not work. Yeah, but like, what do? You, but like, are you going to take the, your check away from your grandmother? Well, that's why this is such a problem. And I'm not. I'm, here's the thing. No, oh, this sorry. is where I'm agreeing with I, I Paul to, Ryan. I is like, com- is like, is like, and more and more people are getting old. I need to like, complete, that's where this falls apart. I need to complete that sentence where I said "well" because it sounded like I was in favor of taking the check away from my grandmother. No, no, by all means, no, I am not. What I am in favor of, on a long-term scale, this would affect no one that is currently collecting Social Security payments. This, is, this would not affect anyone collecting Social Security in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. But we do need to raise the retirement age in the country. Oh, I disagree. We need to lower it to zero. I think we need a universal basic income. We roll Social Security into that. We get rid of the minimum wage and everybody gets a, a monthly check for being an American citizen, whether you're zero years old or 97 years old. I got to think more about that. Paid for by new corporate taxes and income taxes <laughs> on the, the few thing, productive though, is, people. Is the, those things don't. Oh, man. Why, why isn't there a viable public option? Because public option only gets you partway there. 
because Vermont has one, right? No, I don't know. They tried to pass a single payer program and it failed. And California has a single payer program on its ballot. I think this fall or next fall. No, no, no. It passed. Single no. payer in California? Yeah, and it's no. It's being scored, and it's like larger than the entire California budget. Yeah, but there will, I just read an article in the LA Times about it. But the savings that we're gonna get. Yeah, it's like um, some. I think it's Matt Iglesias who said that it's like what people don't realize is that it's like taking a expenditure. It looks like you're creating something out of thin air, but you're basically taking some expenditure that's off the government books and putting it onto the government books. So if you took every Californian and their monthly insurance premiums. Right. Now you don't get to, you don't have to pay that anymore, but you have to pay more in taxes. Yeah. This is the, the psychological battlefield, which is that are Americans more comfortable paying corporations or paying to the government? Yeah, that's a... I think they're more comfortable paying to the corporation. Which makes no sense to me. Because does Apple make a great phone? Yes. Does Lionsgate make a great film? Yes. But I don't need those things to live a a healthy, safe, or productive life. And therefore, I can sit back and watch and enjoy and make some popcorn and watch Google and Apple fight each other to make cooler and cooler gadgets for me to play video games on and watch Mm -hmm. content on and read Twitter on. Right? If Apple and Google disappeared tomorrow, my life would go on. But ultimately, Apple doesn't give a fuck about me other than my money that goes towards an iPhone. Mm-hmm. They are in the business of keeping their employees is, and their shareholders happy. This is back to the China-US conversation. Who has the power in this relationship, the buyer or the seller? Yeah, for you and Apple, the buyer, right? Uh, for me and Apple, I don't know. It's like... I, as an individual buyer, don't have very much power at all. In aggregate, all of the buyers sure. have some power, but that's where you well, get weird because like, <laughs> there are a lot of buyers in China. Right? No, that's not how insurance works because there is no global market for insurance. What do you mean? There's no, a no, global no, market for it, iPhones, but there's no global market oh, for insurance. Right. So for it to be an analogous, it would be like the federal government or Aetna or Blue Shield would have to sell an insurance policy that's available to Chinese people and to Canadian people. Right. But that's not how we structure it at all. We create these fairly arbitrary, you always hate me for using this term, and you're right because I'm using it wrong. But we've got these historically uh, quirky geographic, you know, fiefdoms, right? That They're called states. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like other places do it and they're not necessarily states, right? Um, Whether it's the national health system in the UK, it's like all of the UK, that's that insurance regime's boundaries. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, or whether it's a province in Canada. I don't quite know how Canada structures its insurance. I don't either, but let's, let's, um, let's look at it. Let's look at this question. I forgot the question. (laughs) (laughs) I like what I'm, I'm feel strongly though about is that, is that Apple is beholden to its shareholders and Apple is beholden to its suppliers and Apple is beholden to its employees. And they're only beholden to their customers insofar that they can do the bare minimum to convince their customers to part with the bare minimum amount of money for their profit and loss statement to be in the black Mm -hmm. for a consistent enough amount of time. Right. Mm -hmm. Our incentives are not aligned and I'm picking a bad example because of all the companies in the whole wide world, Apple, which I'm a consumer of, which happens to be based in California and led by a woke as fuck gay man who Mm -hmm. tells investors that he doesn't give, have you heard the climate change story? Mm-mm. About Tim Cook? 
So Tim Cook, um, there was a there was a shareholders meeting um, in the I want to say the fall of 2014, uh, maybe Q3 of 2014, if I remember correctly. And uh, there was a share a institutional shareholder. So like, let's mm-hmm. say I'm making this part up because I don't remember this enough. It's impressive enough that I remember the specific fiscal quarter it was from. Mm-hmm. But um, let's say a guy representing Morgan Stanley holds mm-hmm. $20 right. billion dollars of Apple stock or something, right? Um, and so they've got their representative there and he gets to ask a question. And this particular share of investor uh, is politically conservative. And Apple goes to great lengths at every uh, keynote to highlight the stuff they're doing to help the environment. So mm-hmm. they are using, they've removed these toxic chemicals from their supply chain, or they've done, installed these many solar panels, et cetera. And this investor got up and said, hey, and this guy's a well-known, you know, kind of libertarian economist kind of guy. And he goes, hey, um, I'm going to call you out as a CEO. I think you're making bad decisions. You're not maximizing shareholder value with all of this environmental mumbo jumbo. You're doing all this stuff to be a tree hugger. And uh, I'm not getting my best ROI on my investment. And Tim Cook. I don't think it's ROI on my investment. True. (laughs) You're not getting my best return on my investment. And Tim Cook said, quote, when we work on making our devices accessible by the blind, I don't consider the bloody ROI. If you want me to do things only for ROI reasons, you should get out of this stock. That's dope. Now, if he were the CEO of any company other than the most successful company in the history of the world, (laughs) he probably would have been fired after saying that. He probably would have been investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So what I'm saying is I went on and on about this example of Apple and iPhones and stuff, which was a bad example because of all the corporations in the world, they're probably the most aligned with my worldview, my politics, my sensibilities. Sure. And even then, they're not really in it for me, right? Right. They're in it for their shareholders, their supply chain, their employees, et cetera. Now take a coal company or an insurance provider in Maine or a logging company or a fishing company or whatever, whatever, whatever. Take Google or Facebook, right? You're, you're not a customer of Facebook's. You're a product of Facebook's. Mm-hmm. My whole point is that you don't need to buy an iPhone. There are other competitive devices on the market. And if all the competitive devices disappeared, life would go on. But if you don't get a vaccine for polio as a kid, or if your wife dies in childbirth, or if uh, you're born with a hole in your heart, you you can't go on. <laughs> that's something that out in terms of that's something that kind of uh, is uh, it operates outside of our normal cost incentives um, and our normal market. So one more thing I want to bring up, which is that the United, I talked earlier about the United States's military budget, but the United States doesn't build a lot of bombs. They don't build a lot of aircraft carriers or um, tanks. As far as I know, they hire defense contractors to do that. Right. That's a good question. That's a great question. I don't know. I don't think the United I don't think there is a there is a manufacturing facility run by the Defense Department that cranks out tanks. Right. No, so, it's not. Like jets are made by Boeing or Northrop Grumman or whatever, yeah. right? So my question is wouldn't why can't we build the healthcare system the same way? Because I think the fear is that you're going to just wipe out all these people whose job it is to provide healthcare for Americans right now if we switch to a single payer. But couldn't we have a system where 
it's just single payer that the government is the one paying the bill, but that obviously there's going to be some redundancies along the way. And a lot of the people who like do maybe the account, the accounting side of things, or, you know, if there's two hospitals that are literally across the street from each other, you, you maybe don't need both. Although they're both there. I mean, you know, there sure there'll be redundancies that'll need to be corrected, eliminated, but couldn't you still have kind of a corporate system within a single payer model in the way that you do in the defense side? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know enough about the way these industries work to give a good answer. I know there was a CEO or some high level uh, officer of an insurance company who said a few months ago, like, it's time for us to have the conversation about single payer. And he's the one who kind of brought this idea up that like, the government's going to need us. We know how to provide health care yeah. to people. They're going to need us to continue to deliver that health care. Yeah. So I don't think it's I mean, necessarily that's one or the other. And, and the, the scare tactic. That's you know what would probably happen is they would get rid of, they would get rid of the state lines situation mm. and probably the three or four already the biggest corporate right. operators Kaiser. would probably just swallow the whole market. And there would be like Kaiser, I don't know who United Met Life. I don't fucking know who they. Yeah, I'm sure there's giant ones in New York State that I've never even heard right. of before, right? But whatever the and whatever the four or so biggest ones would just you know become the new AT and T, Verizon, and and T Mobile, and but they would just be giant healthcare conglomerates, and everybody would be signed up for one. Um, yeah, or you'd get a voucher, I guess, maybe. And you'd, it seems weird though. Right. Because I think the scare, I just want to point out that the scare tactic that the Republicans use is like, you could trust the government to be your doctor. And it's like, no, I do not trust Donald Trump to wear a stethoscope and like check my, my blood pressure. But I do, I trust the doctor I already have. I trust any number of doctors that are out there. What single payer does is just changes how those doctors get paid. I just thought of a way that it's different than the military thing. It's that in the military use case, the government is a monopsony. Hmm. So, but you said it yourself. the government doesn't have a monopoly on making tanks. Maybe that's the only ones that ten companies them? that are the only ones that buy them. The American people as a whole are the only ones that can buy American health insurance. But there's no such thing as the American people as a whole. What? What? It's that the the way that consumer behavior works. Every individual person is a different consumer that with diff- totally different needs. Right. The United States goes. We need to bomb Jamaica. However many contractors make bombs, right? There could be 10 that make bombs. You're going to make the same bombs, the same specifications. They're all going to be dropped co-equally on the same mm-hmm. military battlefield. Uh, I think we we need to bring up. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're out of our depth. What's our, uh, what's our healthcare expert's name? I don't know. Um, we should probably make this one a lady because our lawyer and our scientist are gentlemen. Bixby is, I thought, that's it's so... <laughs> So cisgendered of you to assume that uh, that's true. That's true. That Bixby is anything. I thought Bixby just, Bixby just has a nubbin where his genitals would be. <laughs> um, but I'm using the male pronoun he. Um, what was the thing? One thing I wanted to say about uh, the do a lot of politicians and do a lot of Americans trust the government or a corporation to do it? It's like I think because of our cultural story, like because of our culture and our myths and the stories that we tell ourselves, we trust corporations, but not for any good empirical reasons. And what's weird is in that scenario, break it down, forget who the actors are, right? Someone needs something and is going to trade money for Uh that thing. Uh Someone's getting your money. Yeah. Government's getting your money. Blue Shield's getting your money. The CEO of Blue Shield's getting your money. The 
the guy in a cubicle is getting a paycheck that's indirectly getting your money, whatever it is, like you are parting with your money and you need a thing. And so right. long as the thing is of high quality, why should you care? But you do. It's like, I mean, I guess it calls into mind, like, why is there a postal service if FedEx and UPS are in competition with the postal service? Clearly, the postal service does something right. That brings me back to the public option. If you look at it like mail, there should be for-profit companies, and then there should be the public option. And maybe there are some places like the mail, like, there are places in the United States that UPS and FedEx will not deliver to, but the mail has to. Yeah. I think the same. There are consumers that their shield will not provide coverage to. Okay, we're gonna talk more about healthcare. Yeah, oh yeah, we got like many episodes coming up about healthcare. I'm Nick Daze. I'm Eddie Quintana. You can find us on iTunes and please rate us there. Leave us a comment. We'll read it. I want to do something fun. If you leave us a review on iTunes, we will read it on this podcast. Wait, I really like that. Well, if you write us a review, we'll read it, unless it uh, is disparaging to no, any No, we'll read it groups. disparaging. Oh, what if, it, what if the N-word's on there? <laughs> will you say the N-word out loud? No, no, I won't. Okay. But I'll say N-word. So don't write the N-word. Tim Cook will come <laughs> after you. Uh, we'd love a review, and if you do, we'll read it on the air, and thank you. Thanks so much. This is Robot F. Kennedy. <laughs> do you want to re-say that in a way that isn't me sounding like a dickhead? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Our listeners have come to expect that of you. Yeah. <laughs>